The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode of the History of Literature podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com hol. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. That's www.audibletrial.com slash H-O-L. Tunstall, singing Bob Dylan's great song, Tangled Up in Blue. We're going to be talking about the Nobel Prize for Literature today, what it means, some past winners, and some very famous not winners. 
<laughs> I like that. Not winners. It could be my epitaph. Jack Wilson, a champion not winner. Anyway, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature podcast. A winner. The, the podcast is a winner. Don't mind the not winner host. We're glad to have you join us. Please subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Our posting schedule for this holiday season is going to be a little erratic as I try to clear the decks for next year. Getting excited about that. So, today we've got a visit from our old friend Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. He was irritated, I guess we could say, very irritated by our friends on the Nobel Prize Committee. A lot of very deserving authors, very high on that list. Bob Dylan, did he deserve it? Mike says no, and he'll be here to tell us why. I have some thoughts as well. So I started with one of my favorite Dylan songs, Tangled Up in Blue. Let me tell you, I, I grew up as sort of a second wave Dylan fan. My parents were not 60s parents. Here's who they were. 50s kids, really. They came out of college in 1962, and they immediately started teaching high school and elementary school. Jacket and tie, that was my dad, was required in those years. A clip-on tie he wore because he's a Wisconsin dude and because he's my dad. God love him. But still, you showed up without a tie on in those days. The principal called you into the office and sent you home. Go home and put on a tie. Come back Come back after you've put a tie on. So, my parents were young in the 60s, very early 20s, but they were already the establishment. Their music was the music of their high school experience in the 50s. And Broadway was probably the most played in my house. West Side Story, The King and I, Camelot, music like that on the phonograph. And... Bob Newhart Records, and my dad loved some other things that came out in the 70s, The Sting. He loved the soundtrack to The Sting. And Annie, Barbara Streisand, Herb Alpert, that's what was playing in my house. And what did my parents not have? The Beatles, The Stones. That was the music of their students. They were, my parents were probably... About five years too late, but it was a big five years. It was the gulf between trying to get a good grade and being the person who handed out the grades, or between cutting up in class or trying to maintain order in class, protesting and being protested against. It was the gulf of authority. It drove me crazy when I was a kid. I was listening to a classic rock station mainly because the music was a little better than the Top 40 station. Maybe just for a change, be a little different. Maybe there were ads. Top 40 stations repeated themselves a lot, had a lot of ads, so you'd flip over to the classic rock station. There you'd hear Jimi Hendrix and Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and The Who, The Stones, and of course, The Beatles. I looked around at my house and said, where are all the Beatle records? My friend down the street had parents, younger than mine, and he had two copies of all the Beatle records in his house, every single album, two copies of each, because his parents had bought them all before they were married, and then they combined their collection. Music wasn't easy to come by in those days, and my friend could listen to the Beatles whenever he wanted. I had to record songs off the radio, Catch as catch can. Slowly I built my collection of records, but they weren't cheap. I didn't have a whole lot of money, considering I was also spending money on candy bars and Twinkies. Video games, pumping my quarters into Pac-Man and Gorf, my favorite. I'm digressing. I kind of resented my parents for not being up on the, the 60s music that seemed so much preferable to the Bebopalula type stuff of the 50s. And why all this Frank Sinatra? How could you be 25 years old and not buy Sgt. Pepper? That was, that was my, 
my accusation. How could you completely miss the 60s like that? Where, where were you? What were you doing? Well, I get it now. These things happen. Like I said, it's hard to jump in as a teacher and restore some order. And it's hard to switch gears musically. I've missed plenty of music, too. My kids are probably wondering where my rap and hip-hop albums are. I was a little too late. A little too late to get started. And then it's hard to catch up. We go down paths, and most of them start in high school. And one of those guys on the radio on my classic rock station was Bob Dylan. How many of his songs did I hear either? Sung by him or covered by the Birds or Jimi Hendrix? I would say about 20. And those songs were different. They did seem different. They weren't my anthems. It's hard to say they were the soundtrack to my youth. Nobody else was listening to them, I don't think. They belong to a, the youth of another era. The youth that was then in their 30s. It seemed old and and full of pomposity to me. They had a kind of smugness. I talk about this with Mike. I try to explain it. I'll save that for the interview, for the conversation. But we were ready for something else, for punk, New Wave, and Michael Jackson, and Prince, and Duran Duran, and I don't know, Bananarama, Simple Minds. <laughs> Take that any way you want. But there was something compelling about Dylan. He was, struck me as kind of a troubadour, an ancient mariner, something weather-worn in his voice. He was a kind of prophet. That's how he came across coming out of the speakers. I admired him. The songs were so much more interesting than most of what came on. Interesting musically, but mainly interesting lyrically. There were things in there to think about. He tried to catch up with the lyrics, figure out what it meant. But that's the job of poetry and literature. And it's one thing to say that the lyrics are interesting or more interesting than pop music. And it's another thing altogether to say that it's the best that literature has to offer. To award Bob Dylan the Nobel Prize, does he deserve it? It's a good question. It's an interesting question. We're going to take a look at it today. So here. Let's listen to a song that everyone likes, and it's, it's kind of entrancing. But listen to the words. Lay, 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 lay across my big breast bed. Lay, 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 lay across my big breast bed. Whatever colors you have in your mind, I show them to you, and you see them shine. Lay, lay, lay. Lay across my big breast bed Stay, lady, stay Stay with your man a while Until the break of day Let me see you make them smile His clothes are dirty, but his his hands are clean, and you're the best thing that he's ever seen. Stay, lady, stay, stay with your man a while. Why wait any longer for the world to begin? You can have your cake and eat it too Why wait any longer for the one you love Okay, fine. 
fine. If you heard that in high school, maybe you have a soft spot for it. I like Prince songs, too, even though their lyrics are terrible sometimes. But my God, the New Yorker asked their writers to name their favorite Dylan songs after Dylan won the Nobel Prize. Give us some lyrics. What are your favorite lyrics in the Dylan songs? And the first one they highlighted, the first author they listed talked about this song, Lay, Lady, Lay. Come on. <laughs> I thought that was ridiculous even when I was a kid. Lay across my big brass bed. You can have your cake and eat it too. Is that poetry? That would be a disqualify if, if another poet printed that in a in a book of poems, that would be disqualifying. The Nobel Prize Committee would cross them off the list. You can have your cake and eat it too. Is that poetry? I know someone who doesn't think it is. Mike Palindrome. We'll hear from him after the break. Crimson flames tied through my ears Going high and mighty trapped Countless fire and flaming road Using ideas as my map We'll meet on edges soon, said I So much older than I'm younger than that now Half right prejudice leap for Rip down all hate I scream Lies that life is black and white Spoke from my skull I dream Romantic planks of musketeers Foundation deep Somehow, oh, but I was so much older then. I'm younger than that now. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes... The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is our old friend Mike, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature podcast. Thanks, Jack. And before we begin here, I understand you've started up a new Twitter account. Where can our listeners find you? I have. It's uh, it's, it's up. It's uh, It recommends a book a day, um, and the goal is to recommend... Uh, book a day for 10 years but... <laughs> and um i i i'm vouching for the fact that i have read those books okay um the the twitter account is literature sc okay so please please follow if you want recommendations or if you want to disagree with me or send me an email okay or maybe send you suggestions for things that you should read and and uh broadcast to the world Yes, good, good positive spin, which which is a good segue to this episode. Yeah, our topic today is the Nobel Prize for Literature, and the the world of literature always gets a little buzz going when it's time for the Nobel Prize to be announced, and I think we talked about it here on the show when we were discussing Haruki Murakami, who is one of the perennial front runners, kind of in the top five on the, the oddsmakers websites for likely candidates to win the Nobel Prize. And do you know who the 
the last here's a little quiz for you. Do you know who the last American prior to this year was to win the Nobel Prize? Was it Tony Morrison? Yes. In nineteen ninety three. Which is twenty three years or so, and that's kind of a an entire generation. It's a long time for America to speculate. And when you see the the list of authors who are in the top ten, I think there's maybe four or five who are Americans, and it's Don DeLillo and Philip Roth and Joyce Carol Oates, and you just realize that after Toni Morrison, it was really kind of a drought uh, until this year's surprise winner, Bob Dylan. And I, I think I know your reaction. You sent me an email <laughs> uh, with the subject line, Quote, Nobel Prize for Highest Video Game Scores by People Yet to Have Sex. <laughs> Ouch. I take it you're not in favor of the Dylan pick. I I have found so many people who articulated my anger in, in a more <laughs> positive or more interesting way, actually. Uh, Gary Steingart, the novelist and the essayist. Oh, okay. He's, um, he came out against it? Yeah, he said, um, I totally get the Nobel Committee. Books are hard to read. <laughs> I totally get it. That's what oh, that, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a real dig. <laughs> that's pretty snarky. But yeah, they were, they were someone, I think slate.com had a, had an article that the headline was, why not give Margaret Atwood, Sports Person of the Year. Because <laughs> apparently she watches a lot of sports. Oh, she's like, she's, okay. Like, who knew that she's like into sports? And, you know, she's up there on the list. I think she's she was maybe in the, I didn't actually count the numbers, but maybe in the top 50 anyway. And one of the things that I learned as I was researching this uh, this topic for this episode is there have been 113 Nobel Prizes for literature awarded, and 14 have been to women. Oof, that is boy. absolutely ridiculous. And so part of me thinks, I mean, certainly Margaret Atwood would be a yeah. deserving candidate, and A.S. Byatt is pretty high, and, and Carson, and there's lots of women who are up there. And I think, in some ways, part of me thinks we should have women only for about 50 years just to even things out a bit. You know, that, that's why this year's pick was so interesting because I, I always feel like the Nobel Prize Committee is immune to popular opinion. Mm. Their timing is often odd and, and yeah. the, the panel that picks is pretty immune from any sort of pressure, really. I mean, they're just a bunch of Swedes. Yeah, the, the, I mean, this is akin to like suddenly going into school, your Catholic school and the nun just disavowing her vows and just showing up like naked. <laughs> like, okay, you wanted things to be a little looser, but this is, <laughs> this is like, you know, I, I read things like, why not give it yeah. to Michael Jackson or the rapper Eminem, you know? Yeah. You know, you want to talk about like social critiques and like public enemy and, yeah, but you seem to have a different take on this, which is not that Dylan wouldn't have been the most worthy songwriter, but that songwriters in general shouldn't have been excluded or yeah, shouldn't, have, shouldn't have been considered. I read a fair amount of poetry, and I mm -hmm. I think the the fact that Dylan's lyrics are likened to poetry, I, I mean, I get that. I mean, I have a, I have a volume of Lou Reed's lyrics. Mm-hmm. And they were published as if they were po poems mm -hmm. in a book. And I, you know, met Lou Reed and got, got the book signed. And I really enjoy looking at those lyrics from time to time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I just don't think you can consider lyrics poetry. Or maybe the better way to put it is it's hard to hear the, the Lou Reed lyrics without hearing the music. Right. Right. Yeah. One of the one of the Nobel Committee members, she acknowledged that Dylan's lyrics really needed to stand up by themselves, that you couldn't just say that someone wrote like good lyrics in good songs, but that the words on that page would have to have some literary merit in order to qualify. One of the more interesting takedowns I read was was on um, by Stephen Metcalf. Mm. Mm -hmm. 
who compared Dylan to his Metcalf's favorite living poet, Richard Wilbur. Mm-hmm. And he was showing how in Dylan's lyrics, you really need the music yeah. to pro- propel, propel you forward. That was his, you know, the word he focused on. Right. Whereas Wilbur's poetry, and he was saying all poetry, it, it has its own kind of verbal music. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of density that's missing from, from Dylan. I mean, the specific examples also, you know, I didn't even get to that level of sophistication as Metcalf. He has a song called How to Dream About You, Baby. Um, and the lyrics are, her heart is jumping. It's really something. The beat is pumping. My heart is thumping. Spent my money on you, honey. My limbs are shaking. My mind is breaking. Okay, so this is, and this is, you know, Woody Allen had kind of a famous take on this in Annie Hall, where the character Alvy, I guess is his name, the Woody Allen character. Yeah, Alvy Singer. Alvy Singer is dating the Rolling Stone reporter, and she's going on and on about about Dylan, and she's quoting some of his lyrics, and and Woody Allen is so obviously uncomfortable as she's saying, she aches just like a woman. She makes love just like a woman. She takes just like a woman, but she breaks like a little girl. (laughs) (laughs) And, And it does. But I have a different point of view on this, this particular avenue that you're going down, which is I don't think we can measure authors by their worst. I think we have to look at them at their peak because uh-huh. William Faulkner wrote some terrible novels and, and Ernest Hemingway wrote some terrible things and pretty much every Nobel Prize winner probably has written some awful books or, or some awful passages in books. And so to single them out, I don't think is fair. Now, I know I mentioned this in an email to you and your response was, quote, I don't care. so i guess you disagree i think there's so much good poetry out there yeah like this this year i've been and i've read the poet robert haas before but Mm -hmm. this year i spent some time in san francisco haas is from san francisco and i picked up his collection time and materials which won the national book award yeah i was just blown away by this poetry yeah I know. Yeah. I love Robert Haas, and he's not even on the list. He's not oh. even in the top like 100 of, like he's not even in the running for a Nobel and, Prize. And he, you know, he writes poetry criticism. I mean, he, he you know, yeah. Some friends I talked to said, "You're just a snob. You're just an elitist." And I was saying, people who love poetry are actually incredibly open-minded. Mm-hmm. You have to be. It's pretty hard being elitist when nobody cares about what you what you do it's only elitist if if you're doing something people envy right i I don't hear people saying like oh my god can't believe you bought that that volume of poetry i was looking for that everywhere well you know i've got some things that i've got down here that i'm going to use to defend the pick of (laughs) of bob dylan i'll preview one of them for you which is he lives like a poet you know he's iconoclastic he's independent he's dedicated if you think of a lot of poets who maybe are little living conventional lives and maybe they're concerned with conventional things, and then you think of if what you're looking for is a poet who in the Tang Dynasty would have been wandering from village to village uh, in the rain by himself looking for an answer from a, a guru and and then jotting down a haiku on a, a scrap of paper or something. That's that's kind of Dylan how he lives. Mm-hmm. That's his. That's uh, he's got the soul of a poet more than any other pick. People have talked about X factors like his influence mm-hmm. on on poets and songwriters and his influence on people who really don't give a crap about art. And his influence on different across, you know, such a variety of classes and like races. And, you know, I I applaud that, and I, I I understand that, but I just don't think it counts as literature. Mm. So here's an article by Mark Ford in the New York Review of Books, and the title of the article is "Why He Deserves It." 
And I have to say, I was excited to read this because I thought, well, this will be great. I'll just jot these, just jot this down and I'll have all the counter arguments. And it basically was not very convincing. And I jotted down the things that I think Mark Ford would say why the Dylan should be called literature. And he basically kind of, I think he kind of throws up his hands and says, look, it just, he matters a lot to a lot of people who like books and like literature. And we just want to register that somehow. But here's what he says. He says, as was pointed out by a number of Dylan admirers in the aftermath of the Nobel announcement, the issue of whether or not what he does is quote literature is utterly tedious, (laughs) which I, I don't, I don't see why. I mean, maybe that's because we're running the history of literature podcast here, but I don't see why that's a tedious question. And really, the criteria for the Nobel Prize in Literature is very short. I mean, people have asked this, like, well, what's the, what are the rules? What's the criteria? All it is is a passage in Nobel's will when he set this whole thing up, and it was that a prize should be awarded to, quote, the person who shall have produced in the field of literature the most outstanding work in an ideal direction, end quote. So it really, and then there's 18 Swedish judges set up to, to pick it, but it's it. The only thing in there is, well, I guess ideal direction is something you'd you'd have to consider. But the an outstanding work, but but really the only thing is the field of literature. That's really the only criteria that he gave us. And so t- the question of whether or not this is literature is tedious. For that to be a tedious question, just seems to me to be kind of uh, sweeping something important under the rug here. And, you know, I get what you mean by it needs the music to propel it forward and how that doesn't really uh, fit with the idea of literature. The example I thought of is if there was an award for, you know, given to painters and they Mm -hmm. gave it to Martin Scorsese. And it'd be like, well, yeah, we all think that he's got this great visual sense and he's, I'm sure painters love to go to see his movies just like everybody else uh, and art critics, I'm sure, are are fans of it. But if you were then pointing to particular passages and it had the soundtrack underneath or the acting and the, you know, there's a lot going on there other than just composing a visual image. Yeah. Okay. So the other thing that Mark Ford comes up with, <laughs> he says... If pressed to make a case for the, quote, literary merit of Dylan's songs, or at least to indicate some of the elements that make him such a great writer of song lyrics, I would probably start with his gift for the compressed narrative, his ability to hit off a scene or character with electric swiftness. (laughs) Then he says, this is present in even his earliest songs. Quote, hey, Mr. Bartender, I swear I'm not too young. That's it. That's the example he gives, which, uh, I mean, there yeah. must be 500 poets just in America who have written lines as electric as those in setting forth a, a narrative and to set up characters. And then Mark Ford says, does the underage boy get served by the bartender? And why does he need the drink? I mean, this, this, is, tr- <laughs> this is trying really hard to turn Dylan into literature. And then he gives one more example, which I'll, I'll give just to be fair. It's, uh, the next quote is, Something happened to him that day. I thought I heard a stranger say, I hung my head and stole away. <laughs> and Mark Ford says, What does the speaker overhear about his friend? And why does it make him hang his head and slink away? I get that it's more interesting than... Mm-hmm. 99% of pop lyrics, you would hear that and, and you'd be like, oh, I get to listen to the song and I'm kind of pulled into a narrative here. But the idea that that is something particularly well done by Dylan that isn't done as well by plenty of other poets is, to me, is just a little bit ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, the the, the Seattle newspaper, The Stranger, um, the columnist Rich Smith, I, I like to read him a lot. He says, pegging Dylan as a poet or writer of literature robs him a little of his musical genius. The ghost of electricity howls in the bones of her face, Dylan sings in the song Visions of Joanna. That's a good line, is what Smith talking. 
That's a good line. Many poets would trade you an armful of hyacinths for a line like that. But the line reaches its fullest expression only when Dylan howls like a ghost on the words ghost and howl as mm. if he were that electric spirit. And I got to thinking that, full disclosure here, I, I really don't like Dylan. Mm-hmm. And I, I haven't listened to a lot of Dylan. So when I was reading the Dylan lyrics, I didn't have the benefit of the music behind it. Right. So I found his lyrics to be okay because mm-hmm. it's not just non sequiturs like a lot of folk music uh, and a lot of pop music, you know, that isn't about love. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like a string of images. But I thought his lyrics weren't as good as, you know, uh, Leonard Cohen, mm-hmm. who just passed away, mm-hmm. or Lou Reed. I mean, here's some of Dylan's lyrics. And just if people don't know the song, it would be a very good example of why his lyrics, you know, are not poetry. So the lyrics are, The Union Central is pulling out. The orchids are in bloom. I've only got me one good shirt left, and it smells of stale perfume. In 14 months, I've only smiled once, and I didn't do it consciously. Somebody's got to find your trail. I guess it must be up to me. <laughs> now, without the music, I'm, I'm going right. to just argue that, that that's not poetry. Yeah. Yeah, and, and when you have the music... Then the lyrics, they really do come as more of a surprise. Yeah. You know, and the rhymes, the end rhymes, and you're like, oh, wow, you know, that that's unexpected. But if you're in the mode of reading a poem and you're expecting end lyrics and you're expecting, or sorry, end rhymes, and you're looking for something intelligible, then it, it's not always there. I will say that my anger toward him is waned once Trump got elected. You know, that's interesting. I had the same thing that I wrote down. It's number six on my <laughs> list. Do you want like, to talk about why that is? Yeah, I mean, I, let, I was thinking, let the Dylan rabble-rousers do something. Mm. If Dylan is so influential and has shaped people, let them do something about Trump. Yeah, yeah. Let, let this pick mean something. Right. Yeah, it's interesting because if if he had been chosen after Trump was elected, then it'd probably be like, oh my God, what are they? Are they thinking that this is going to change things? Are they? Are they thinking? You know, it'd be almost like uh, when they gave Obama the Nobel Prize for Peace just after he got elected, and it was really, I think, more of a uh, like, thank God you guys don't have Bush anymore as your president than it was, you know, for anything he had actually accomplished at that point. But, you know, I had the same feeling because I've been thinking a lot about the 60s and you and I, I'm going to try to say this, I don't mean to offend any baby boomers, but you and I grew up in the 70s and 80s and and we had a very different relationship to figures like Bob Dylan. And for us, I mean, the, the 60s were, that was kind of, like the hippies, the former hippies and the former protesters and the former, I don't know, flower children and every all of the the cultural elements of the 60s were for us kind of like the establishment. And they came to us in a kind of sanctimonious way where mm-hmm. we grew up kind of resisting that because it seemed like all we heard was that our generation you know, wasn't as good. We weren't taking on as big of problems. We didn't care about anything but ourselves. And it it was, it felt kind of tiresome and it felt, you know, we have eyes. We were looking at uh, a lot of those same people who were suddenly happily joining the the yuppie generation and, and the Reagan won 49 states. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for us, you know, I can remember there was a Family Ties episode where the kids, the parents, I don't know if you remember how Family Ties was set up, but it was like... It was, it was my favorite show. Oh, okay. So it was like <laughs> the, you know, how the parents were, I think the father was like a, a PBS documentary yeah. f- filmmaker or something. And, he, he and had the go- Heart of Gold. and Yeah, yeah. and the two of them were the, the, the parents were the former 
60s generation and that now they're dealing with having 80s kids and there was an episode where they were playing bob dylan and they were trying to say like this is real music and you guys just need to hear it and then every time they would put on a song it was kind of dylan at his worst in his singing and it would just sound like he was he was croaking and the kids would roll their eyes and it was kind of funny but that was kind of who bob dylan was for us it was oh, this is the guy who our parents are, you know, that generation is telling us is the the voice and the the leader of his generation and that he's a genius and that he, we should only listen to him. And then we listen to him and he, he sounds um, just like he doesn't know how to sing. <laughs> and I can remember another story where uh, our chorus teacher came in and she said, she was at home or maybe in her church or something. She had to do some kind of singing event and she was trying to help people. And so she told everyone who was in this chorus, well, maybe you should pick someone out from the, we are the world video and just sing in that style. And maybe mm-hmm. that'll help you sing. And then she said, and guess who my husband chose Bob Dylan. <laughs> and everybody just, you know, groaned and like, Oh yeah, that guy, what was that guy even doing in that video? <laughs> and then as I got a little bit older, I thought, oh, that's pretty cool that they had Bob Dylan, like such an icon of the 60s, that they they brought him in. And, and there's a great video where he's rehearsing his uh, <laughs> where he's rehearsing his his part, which is uh, which is amazing. And Quincy Jones is giving him little uh, words of encouragement, which is really a, a fun video. It's true, we make a better day, just you and me. What's that? Just stay right into the mic like that, Bob. That's beautiful. And you know what's nice, man, is you sing along with the chorus like that, too. That's the only time That's the only time we do an octave like that. That's beautiful. I get out, though, right after huh? me, right there. Yeah, just after you and me. But I mean, but the thing you were doing up there, you were singing along with the chorus. We are the children. That's nice, man. Just, just a little closer to you. Okay. That's beautiful. That's the only time we use the low octave. All right, man, it sounds great. Let's do it. Yeah. Do it one more time, Steve. Can you? Okay. Uh-huh. Well, oh, oh, don't, don't run it yet. But anyway, I had the same kind of shift that you did, and and a lot of it is because of DC now is in kind of this turmoil, and there's a lot of uncertainty about what what the Trump presidency is going to mean for people, and what it's going to mean for uh, for the future of the country, and and are we going to see uh, big divides internally, and are we going to see big divides between America and the rest of the world, and it has kind of made me think I can walk around and say, oh, everything's changed and this has got to face a kind of grim reality here. And then I think in the 60s, they had presidents that they thought were lying to them and they had a draft. I thought, imagine this feeling that everybody has right now, this uncertainty. And then if you imagine that everyone in your generation is worried about themselves and people they know maybe being sent off to a war and then getting the awful news coming back. And it, it did make me kind of appreciate the sixties all over again. And to think that he represented Bob Dylan represented something during that time, whether it was protest or whether it was youth or, you know, just a kind of genuine alternative, I guess you'd say to the establishment and the people in power, I could kind of see why people would be very attached to his abilities as a, a songwriter and a lyricist. Maybe, maybe I'm just too cynical. Like, who would be 
the Bob Dylan of our generation? Like, who would we, who who do we look at unequivocally as a model, mm-hmm. and would would not you know make a sarcastic remark about like if if they got some accolades? I mean, I, I don't really know if we have one. I don't either. I I mean, yeah, was like Michael Jordan. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, I I mean maybe Obama. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean his speeches certainly I think kind of stood for something that people that resonated with people in a kind of lyrical way. I actually there was part of me that when he won the Nobel Prize, I assumed it was for literature, and I thought it was going to be a Winston Churchill kind of thing where they were giving it to him for the speeches that he made on the trail and campaign trail and on, during his acceptance speech and because he had a kind of soaring rhetoric, especially in his first campaign, that was very inspiring, and it was inspiring to a lot of people. I, I forgot that they gave the Nobel to to Winston Churchill for his speeches. I think it was, yeah, maybe his speeches. I, I know he was, he was king of aphorisms, right? He had, he had, yeah. He was like the most quotable leader. He also wrote some, some works of history, which they might have... They might have been using. I'm going to look it up right now. In 1953, Winston Churchill, Nobel Prize in Literature, quote, for his mastery of historical and biographical description, as well as for brilliant oratory in defending exalted human values. Hmm. I guess I would have been pretty upset then, too. (laughs) 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 Well, here's the thing about Dylan's, you know, I I, I think... yeah, there there are two opposing viewpoints. One is there's more than enough room in the literary community for more books, mm-hmm. and the other view is if we let them into the club, then what's next? Mm. Are we going to years from now let pop lyrics? I mean, there's something about folk lyrics. Like Dylan's old, and there's been some passage of time where his music is still has endured. So there's that, but at some point, will we just say, you know, that this is a worldwide global hit and give them the Nobel Prize? Mm. It's frightening. Okay, let me let me give you a counterexample, which is uh, an example I've seen in a few different uh, essays and and commentaries on the Dylan choice, and they were talking about Sappho. And Sappho, the poet, was actually a songwriter, and all of her music was lost. But we know from uh, descriptions and letters and from the general reaction to her music that it, it was beautiful. And mm-hmm. she would go from island to island, and, and islands in Greece would erect statues to her just to greet her when she arrived. She was this sort of pop star of her day. And the words themselves, as they've been handed down, it's a little hard for me because I don't read the ancient Greek, but it's, it's, they're still beautiful and they're still striking and the imagery is still, still vivid. And we don't know exactly how it compares with everything that was written at the time, but we know how it compares with what has survived. And so I, I did this thought experiment where I thought, okay, two th- let's say it's 2,000 years from now. Mm-hmm. And the scholars are recovering, they've recovered a handful of texts from our era. And what they get is, let's say, Toni Morrison and, I don't know, Saul Bellow. And then they get the lyrics of Bob Dylan and they get some some letters that says, well, actually, these were set to music, uh, but all we have are the words. Mm-hmm. And I thought, am I okay with that? Am I okay with that being sort of the three pieces of literature that survived from the 20th century. And I think I am. I think mm-hmm. I'd be, you know, I, I wouldn't feel uh, horrible that it wasn't Robert Haas instead of Bob Dylan. I'd feel like that's yeah. not too bad, you know. And, and I think part of it is because what he's done feels like the project of poetry. He set out to, he acts like a poet. He's used words to inspire images and ideas and voices and moods. And even though they're not always coherent and they're not always as <laughs> as fully developed as a as a poem might be, but 
they convey situations mm-hmm. and ideas and and mainly it's just that he really mattered to so many people in a way that even poets I like, like Philip Levine, who, you know, yeah. I think he's a, a great poet and I wish more people would read him. But the fact is one Bob Dylan song has probably been listened to and reflected upon more than 10 or 12 different uh, Philip Levines. I, I normally don't give a crap about the Nobel Prize in literature. <laughs> and this year I did because of this pick. If there is a writer or a poet that I haven't heard of, the Nobel Prize will make me kind of quickly do a search and mm-hmm. read a little bit about them. But I have such a, a backlog of books that I've been meaning to read forever that just because you get the Nobel Prize doesn't mean I suddenly read you. Right, yeah. There are, so, there are plenty of those of those picks. And uh, I think, I, uh, let me pull this out here. I jotted down some some previous winners mm-hmm. along with, you know, John Steinbeck and Ernest Hemingway and William Faulkner. And there's also a famous list of people who never won. Uh, Leo Tolstoy, Chekhov, Gorky, Ibsen, Strindberg, Zola, Proust, Kafka, Rilke, Brecht, Croce, Hardy, Henry James, Mark Twain, Joseph Conrad, James Joyce. I mean, <laughs> There's pretty, there's a pretty good list of people who were left out. Here's here's some people who won instead of those people: uh, Sully Prudhomme, Jose Echegaray, Rudolf Eucken, Paul von Heise, Werner von Heidenstam, Vladislaw Raymond, Grazia de Leda. Let me just say again some of the people who didn't win: E.M. Forster, Virginia Woolf. Dylan Thomas, William James, Theodore Dreiser, Edith Wharton, Scott Fitzgerald, Ezra Pound, Graham Greene, Vladimir Nabokov, W.H. Auden, Robert Frost. And then here's the list of people who did win. Grazia Deleda, Eric, <laughs> Eric A. Karlfeldt, Franz, Franz Silanpa. Uh, and then this was one. <laughs> this was one of the controversial picks. In 1974, people were handicapping that Graham Greene, Saul Bellow, and Vladimir Nabokov were the three front runners, mm-hmm. and they were passed over in favor of two Swedish authors, Ivan Johnson and Harry Martinson, who were also Nobel judges. <laughs> nice. This, to me, this was about as good as I could find, and, and I have to say... I did. There, there's something about Dylan when when Dylan is covered by other people that can just be beautiful. I mean, his songs. It's it's kind of fun to listen to one of his songs where he's singing in kind of his you know tinny, whiny, stripped down style, and then to hear the same song as it's done by Jimi Hendrix or the Birds or of uh, oh, you know hundreds of other people who have covered there's one i really like um the tangled up in blue by katie tunstall and emmy lou harris was one of the great interpreters of of dylan's song so part of part of me is hearing her voice when i'm doing this i'll confess but i also think these are lyrics that stand up on the page as poetry and you know he's got 500 songs or something so we could probably put together a bigger list of this if we took the time but this is his his song, Every Grain of Sand. So I'm going to read some of this, and um, you tell me if you think it's it's better poetry than you were giving Dylan credit for. Every Grain of Sand. In the time of my confession, in the hour of my deepest need, when the pool of tears beneath my feet floods every newborn seed, there's a dying voice within me reaching out somewhere, toiling in the danger and the morals of despair. Don't have the inclination to look back on any mistake. Like Cain, I now behold this chain of events that I must break. In the fury of the moment, I can see the master's hand in every leaf that trembles in every grain of sand. Oh, the flowers of indulgence and the weeds of yesteryear, like criminals, they have choked the breath of conscience and good cheer. 
The sun beams down upon the steps of time to light the way, to ease the pain of idleness and the memory of decay. I gaze into the doorway of temptation's angry flame, and every time I pass that way, I'll always hear my name. Then onward in my journey I come to understand that every hair is numbered like every grain of sand. I have gone from rags to riches in the sorrow of the night, in the violence of a summer's dream, in the chill of a wintry light, in the bitter dance of loneliness fading into space, in the broken mirror of innocence on each forgotten face. I hear the ancient footsteps like the motion of the sea. Sometimes I turn, there's someone there, other times it's only me. I am hanging in the balance of the reality of man, like every sparrow falling, like every grain of sand. That's not bad. (laughs) (laughs) Right? You're not convinced? Sort of. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I'll keep looking. I'm going to... I'm actually... I've I've enjoying Dylan more than I thought I would, and I wow. I do like listening to his songs. So I'll keep looking. And if I come up with one that's better than that, I'll uh, I'll send it your way and see if I can I can crack this uh, <laughs> facade of yours, this uh, this shell you've put up against uh, against Bob Dylan. I think at this point in my life, the only reason, the only way I could get to like Bob Dylan is if. Some woman I was interested in made me. <laughs> it's like one of those like teenage dating things where you're like, really? You like that person? Okay, I'll just give it a try then. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, you know, I I will say my friends who are poets who have mm-hmm. defended Dylan to me have made me think. And one of them says, who are you arguing with? Why even argue? And which is goes back to the point like we we can make the Nobel Prize mean something more than it means now. Mm-hmm. You know that there's a bigger there's a bigger battle than defending poetry, the purity of poetry. Right. Well, what is what is the battle? Because the other thing I thought is, you know, Bob Dylan is closer to poetry than novelists are to poetry. I think. I mean, if if literature's got to be a big tent, then song lyrics might might deserve a spot. I think it's just a part of me that already is separating literary fiction from pulp fiction or mm-hmm. genre fiction. So you're you're talking to a guy who has stopped reading certain literary novelists because I I, I just don't, don't think they're doing anything enduring, which is you know mm. pretty snobby, pretty pretty uh provincial such a narrow focus to have pretty narrow focus to have and you know i heard this this great interview i think it was on charlie rose and it was with uh john grisham and charlie Mm -hmm. rose said something like does it bother you that you don't win more prizes and that the critics you know don't love your books the way they or don't treat them with the the respect that they treat other kinds of fiction and and john grisham said well sure I mean, I, I wish I won more prizes and, and got better reviews from respected critics. And he said, but, you know, a lot of people who win prizes and get, uh, res- you know, get great reviews probably wish they sold as many books as I did, too. Yeah. Everybody wants both, but most people, you kind of get a, you kind of land on one side or the other. And maybe that's the issue that you're having with Dylan, or maybe that's the issue that a lot of people are having with Dylan is it's, it would be like if they gave it the prize to John Grisham and it's like, well, you already get the readership. You already get, you know, the fame and the fortune, you know, what about the, the poor guy writing in Krakow who's living in an attic and nobody's ever heard of him. And he's been turning out beautiful verses and that's how he spent his life. If the Nobel Prize isn't there to to grant some recognition to some people like that, then what will? Yeah, no, no, that I I definitely I definitely feel that that you know there are more deserving people than him. I mean, maybe that's the the that's the strongest, most honest argument I can make. I mean, I can make all these arguments about 
his lyrics aren't there there isn't a density of language and um it, it rely it, it you know is inextricably linked or relies on the music but maybe at the end of the day it's just you know they're why him right yeah. right why uh why, why does he get to join the ranks of Sully Prudhomme, Jose Echegare, <laughs> Rudolf Yukin, Paul von Heise, <laughs> Werner von Heidenstam, and Vladislaw Raymond, and Grazia Dallada? Why? <laughs> okay, well, let's wrap things up there. And Mike, thank you again. I found this very uh, illuminating and enjoyable as always. Thanks for joining me on the History of Literature podcast. You're welcome. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature podcast. Are you reading the Dubliners? Tis the season to read Joyce. Oh, <laughs> to read Joyce. Oh, I thought that was so clever and Joycean. And when I put that on the blog, it sailed past everyone. Nobody ever mentioned it. Ah, well. Sometimes hidden gems stay hidden forever. <laughs> Speaking of which, we have some good episodes coming up. Stay tuned or subscribe. And please tell all your friends by sharing on Facebook or however you like to spread the good news. You can find us at historyofliterature.com and facebook.com slash historyofliterature. Now, let's listen to Ms. Emmy Lou Harris, one of Dylan's personal favorites, by the way, singing from her great album, Wrecking Ball. Good Lord, that's a good album. Neil Young helped out a bit. And Steve Earle and Lucinda Williams and Daniel Lanoy. Put that one on your list. Something to visit or revisit. When you get there, put on this song and think of Mr. Bob Dylan, Nobel Prize winner. Inspiration to many. Bruce Springsteen, John Lennon, lots of people took a page out of his playbook. Or maybe I should say his cosmic journal. And they still are. Congratulations to you, Bob. Bob Dylan. Singer-songwriter, 60s icon, musical genius. And finally, yes, I think, yes, I think we could say a poet. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
in the bar. 